0: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association
1: of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. In this podcast, recorded at the 2019 AUKUS Spring Meeting, you'll hear the Outpatient Joint Replacement Symposium discussion. The moderator is Dr. Mike Meneghini, with panelists Dr. Adolph Lombardi, Dr. Mark Pagano, and Dr. Greg Polkowski. They will cover patient selection, ASCs, multimodal pain protocols, and institutional
2: barriers. All right, good afternoon everybody. I'm Michael Meneghini from uh, Indianapolis. This is a symposium on a very hot topic. Honored that AUKUS has allowed us to uh, present this. It's on outpatient hip and knee arthroplasty. So I think in 2019, clearly this is a, um, a topic that's on the forefront of our profession. Uh, And I think it also harkens back to our guest speaker. Here will be the program as we run through it. Uh, At first, I'll talk about patient uh, selection, give you a little bit of data on where we think this is headed. Then the essential elements in an ambulatory surgery center. Adolph Lombardi is going to talk about that. Probably no better person uh, with a vast experience in this space to give us the tips and tricks on how to do it in the ASC. And then Mark Pagnano's gonna been on the forefront of the multimodal pain um, development protocols over the years, gonna give us the Mayo experience and how they discharge patients rapidly from a pain control perspective, critical element in outpatient arthroplasty. And then finally, Greg Paul is gonna share with us how this works in a large academic hospitals, because we know everybody has a variety of institutional uh, barriers that they deal with. He's gonna walk us through some of his own experiences so then we'll follow that with a good 20 minute discussion period and I really we have some case examples of barriers but I really would like this to be interactive so build up your questions ask the panel we're very honored to have experts in this space up here and please uh, use the time wisely to ask them questions uh, and get your get your questions answered so we'll start off with patient selection a little bit of introduction my conflicts are here they're relevant um, I have ownership shares in an ambulatory surgery center, partially owned with IU Health, and I also have uh, outpatient selection medical risk uh, program that is licensed from DJO, so understand those conflicts are relevant as I discuss those with you. So I think we can all agree that multiple factors are fueling the interest in outpatient hip and knee arthroplasty, one of which is surgeon investment in ambulatory surgery centers, the control of the OR environment that we have when we're in a smaller environment, Compared to the big institutions. And something controlling it from an external perspective is the episode of care cost control. There's no doubt we can do it cheaper in an outpatient setting. That's driven by patients and payers alike. And then I think there's gradual patient demand. If you look at the projections, these are pretty staggering. So many of you have seen this data. But over the next decade, we expect a 77% increase in hip and knee replacement growth. Only 3% of that will be on the inpatient side. Obviously, if you interact with your hospital administrators, they're keenly aware of this. We expect a 457% increase in outpatient knees and an over 600% increase in outpatient hips. So pretty staggering numbers. According to Becker's ASC uh, publication, the last time they looked at projections, in 2016, about 15% of our hip and knee replacements were done as an outpatient. And if you look, it's expected to cross the 50% mark in 2026. And that's regionally variable, as you can imagine. One of the things pushing this from an external perspective, the Medicare spend for total joint replacement, they anticipated back in 2014, the data is about $50,000 per hospitalization. That's a $7 billion annual spend. Not surprising that we became uh, the target of their cost reduction efforts. And we believe that outpatient joint replacement cost anywhere around half half as much as that, but that's depending again on regional and payers, et cetera. And then of course, we all know that in January 1 of last year, CMS's decision to take total knee replacement off the inpatient only list created some confusion, but also opportunity to uh, do these patients in the outpatient world. Now we know as this happens, there's scrutiny. Um, the media picked up on this last year in a sort of um, a study done by Kaiser and USA Today. It ended up on a number of media outlets. And one of the things they talked about in that was patient selection. So in our first two, first do no harm, one of the things we have to do is choose the proper patients for the outpatient setting. They commented that doctors can use an anesthesia risk assessment screen uh, to screen out fragile patients. One healthy patients get a score of one and five means you're nearly dead. That was what was written in the article. That's the ASA score that we all uh, use and I'll talk about that. So I think one of the things that I hope the speakers are gonna comment on, I know they will, are what the essential elements are of an outpatient joint replacement program. Gotta have good staff, gotta have a good partnership with anesthesia. Dr. is gonna talk about multimodal pain uh, protocols, perioperative medical care, excellent education for what those patients do when they go home because they're now not in the hospital. Surgeon staff, nursing support, and optimized surgical techniques. And then finally, what I'm gonna speak on over the next few minutes is patient selection. So I think that's multifactorial, the patient selection process, but I think it's critical to success. So motivated patients, number one, patients who have their heels dug in that they don't wanna go home the same day, I say for now in 2019, absolutely let that patient be done as an inpatient. That's a predictor of failure. They have to have adequate home support, whether it's family, friends, what have you, they're gonna be home quickly. Perioperative physical and mental condition, they have to be mentally ready. Minimal, if any, preoperative narcotics, and then medical risk, that's the big thing. We don't want someone to go home and end up having some some event, some medical event, causes a compromise. So I would argue that in 2019, we can easily, what's going on right now is we can select the healthy patients, what we do. But as we look at the Medicare population, transforming this is going to be a little bit more challenging. And what we use currently is the ASA score. This is the original article, if you haven't seen it. Um, interesting to note, I was six years old when this thing was uh, Uh, developed, and we still use it today. Not that medicine's transformed over the last four decades, but nonetheless, we still use it today. And one of the things you'll see is it was a survey of 304 anesthesiologists. About 77% responded. They had 10 hypothetical patients, and they only had agreement on about six of those. So that's what we currently use, and we justify to the public that we are using to select patients from a health perspective to go to the outpatient space. And even the authors in 1978 stated that it is useful, but suffers from a lack of scientific precision. So knowing that, and you can see how it's graded now: one, two, three, four, five. And most of us sit in, most of our patients sit in the two and three zone. Determining that's a bit trickier. And one of the things that we've done a lot of work over the last couple of years with our internal medicine physician, who's predominantly responsible for this, is a medical status by way of the ASA does not always correlate with outpatient failure. That's one of the things that we really have uh, tried to dive deeper into. So a patient with poor pain tolerance and a history of an ileus in a prior surgery, that would qualify as an ASA-1. Stable coronary artery disease would be an ASA-3. You think you would all agree that the first patient would not be appropriate to be done in an ambulatory surgery center. The other one absolutely would be okay to be done in a surgery center as long as they're appropriately optimized in their status of coronary artery disease. So the OR score was something we developed. This is what we have a conflict with. Please take that um, fully into consideration. My partner, who's a perioperative medical specialist, developed it. We've published on it. This was the initial series uh, a couple years ago. Here's the categories. It's basically work through the body systems on basically premise that certain things cause uh, os, os- Uh, cause or concern for doing someone in an ambulatory surgery center. This is not to say whether someone's going to have a medical complication, it's are they appropriate to be done as an outpatient. So when you look at the data, it was pretty revealing. The first pass at it was a little over a thousand patients, and it had a higher positive predictive value than ASA, but we didn't have a large number of same-day discharge patients in that cohort. It was validated by Rand Swartzkopf, who was in the room, um, who they validated externally, also showed showed a correlation with early discharge, and then our update that we just presented um, a couple months ago, looking at over 2,000 patients now, more same-day discharges, the data gets better uh, as we continue to refine it, and you'll see what you want there on your x-axis is length of stay, your y-axis is the score, the blue is ASA, the red is the OR score, so you want something with a steep slope, and that's what we feel comfortable in, that as the ORA score goes up, their risk of failing an outpatient discharge uh, also goes up. And you'll, you'll notice that ASA is 2.1, 2.6, 2.6. You obviously don't have an ASA score of 2.6. It's 2 or 3, which makes it a little bit uh, difficult to uh, analyze. So if you look at the positive predictive value now, you'll see that this is, with you said, an ORA score of 60. That's all detailed in the paper. Uh, ones on the left are, are the solid bars are same day discharge, the faded bars are next day. So you can see improved improved positive predictive value of the ORA score over ASA in both same day and next day. Here's the take home message. If you look at the positive predictive value and the specificity and the false positive rate, it is an ideal confirmatory test. It is not a screening test. So you don't put it out in front of 100 patients all with medical problems and say, which ones should I do in my ambulatory surgery center? If you have a patient you believe is appropriate for an ASC or same day discharge, it will confirm that that patient is in fact, and it will throw up a red flag if there's something that you should consider and pause about. Same thing, it's not an ideal screening tool. If you look at our data in the 2000 patients, we're confident so far in how we've selected those patients. Our same day discharge readmission rate, obviously we're not perfect. There's still patients being treated undergoing hip and knee replacement, 0.4 readmission rate, and then 2.1, 2.8 as you go further down. So in summary, um, I think deciding inpatient and outpatient is certainly multifactorial. It involves multiple issues. Patient selection is one of them. And always put safety first, and then a final plug for the AUKUS position statement that we developed in collaboration with Academy, Hip Society, Knee Society. Uh, and even Avamed we got their input on in terms of if you're thinking about doing it at least goes through some good guidelines that all those organizations agreed were paramount to keep patients safe. So thank you very much for your attention and I'm going to introduce Adolph Lombardi to talk to us about how to do this in the outpatient ASC setting. Adolph.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, if I could just ask uh, for a moment of silence in the past 24 months we've lost three icons And adult hip and knee reconstruction, Richard Rothman, David Hungerford, and this week my partner and friend Tom Mallory. All right, today I'm going to talk to you about essential elements of an outpatient arthroplasty program in an ASC, of way of disclosures. Of course, my association with Zimmer Biomet, but also my association with uh, White Fence Surgical Suites. There's a lot of, uh, uh, of driving factors and stakeholders. At the core is the outpatient arthroplasty. You have the healthcare cost, you have the control of care, which I hope is ourselves the surgeon. You have the, what does the patient expect, and then of course the health systems are trying to figure out what they need to do to be part of this outpatient arthroplasty. I'm, I'm sure if you look at this list, none of you would consider doing them in a uh, hospital. They're all outpatient procedures. So why do we have this concern about doing outpatient patient arthroplasty, it's fear, it's patient, staff, habit, dogma. So dispel the myths, I say. So the myth, number one, that it's dangerous. And as we just heard, it's not dangerous if we do the right patient selection. Hopefully we're operating on healthy patients, not sick patients. And remember, most of the post-operative complications unfortunately occur well after discharge because many of us are discharging our patients within, at least in the U.S., within 24 to 48 hours. My patients prefer the hospital. Well, I'm not really sure that's true. It's not true in our situation. We have better patient satisfaction in the outpatient setting, more patient education in the outpatient setting, and of course, lower uh, infection rates because the sick and infected patients go to the hospital. Outpatient arthroplasty is an assembly line. Not true again. I mean, I get to see the patient pre-op, intra-op, and at least four or five times post-op, because every time I walk by, I stop and see what their progress is before they're discharged. And our average length of stay in the center is about four to five hours. I don't see candidates. Well, I don't know who you're looking at. My patients are the baby boomer generation. They have severe OA, and they're wanting to move on. They're demanding, and they want to have rapid recovery. And then uh, outpatient arthroplasty is too expensive. Again, this is not uh, true. There's definitely adequate reimbursement to do it in the outpatient center. I'm gonna show you a little bit of that data. So challenge the dogma, develop protocols that match the modern patient, uh, the outpatient setting encourages independence and rapid recovery, and it consumes less resources. This is the nutshell. I don't care whether you're doing it at the hospital or you're doing it in, in, in an outpatient center, it's multifactorial. First of all, evaluate the patient, align expectations. Second, educate the patient and the family. Thirdly, get the patient optimized medically. So that they can go through the operation without any issues. And next, have the anesthetic team on board, being positive, being enthusiastic, doing the pre op blocks, et cetera, in the pre op holding area. Pain management we are going to hear about. Doing your surgery efficiently, and then deciding on your post operative physical therapy program. So you manage the patient up front. You indicate the surgery. You discuss what the surgery is going to be. You develop the methodology and you schedule the patient. we all see these things on the bottom list here, the diabetes, the smoker, the BMI. Again, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, we need to deal with optimization of the patient preoperatively. This is what we do as far as who's a candidate for outpatient arthroplasty. Question number one, does the patient have an ongoing medical issue that cannot be optimized? Well, if it's yes, you've got to postpone the surgery and optimize. If it's no, does the patient have organ failure? If it's yes, then that patient's got to be done in a hospital. If it's no, does the patient have an adequate support system then we can obviously if that's present we can do the surgery in an outpatient setting you know we started off with these sort of uh, issues and, and evaluations by our medical consultants and they were telling us maybe prior revascularization but after revascularization the patient is actually healthy uh, obviously if you had a pilot flying an airplane do you want him flying just before he had a revascularization or after and he's approved so there there's some of the things that we now don't even consider but we still look at all of these with our medical consultants um, any patient can be discharged on the day of surgery if they're healthy with well managed comorbidities, they're an engaged family, they're safe with ambulation, and they have a proven protocol of the anesthesia, the pain control, and post operative communication. What about payer mix? Okay, because this also is what's good for your patient, what's good for your facility versus the hospital. So you go, uh, as we just talked about. The medical history, the planned procedure, potential for independence, and then what payer coverage do they have, and are they capable of being done in the hospital, which is you know our Medicare total hips and total knees today, uh, because even though total knees are considered as an outpatient in some hospitals, they have to be done at the hospital, not in a setting. But unis, on the other hand, are an outpatient procedure. ASCs depend more on payer contract terms. Uh, the commercial insurance obviously is negotiable. Medicare is non-negotiable, and only unis unis are paid for. Be sure that your patient is getting a uni. So I think you have to do good radiographs, make sure that they're indicated, but every now and then you're going to have to convert in your outpatient center and eat the cost of doing a total knee because you have to deliver the best care for the patient. So we still do uh, Medicare unis constantly in the outpatient center as well as doing the commercially insured patients. So how do you capture the patients that can go to your center? Uh, well. You have to evaluate what their benefit package is. Do they have inpatient, in network, or out of network benefits? Are they Medicare? Are they Medicare with a commercial secondary? Uh, so these are the types of things that are evaluated for me before I see the patient and then they have our star program. If they have the sort of greenish yellow star, then we know that they're ASC approved. So when I see the patient, there's no reason for me to have a discussion with the patient about possibly going home the same day if they're a red star and we're gonna do a total hip on them, or if they're a blue star and we're gonna do a total hip on them, or a total knee, but if they're Medicare and we're gonna do a uni, then we can have that conversation about doing an outpatient. So verify the benefits, Make sure the medical candidates, uh, and if they are, use the STAR system as we do, and then the procedure can be dictated as to whether it's going to be done in the outpatient or the inpatient setting. We do that in in combination with our medical consultants. So I would designate a patient as an outpatient when they get their preoperative medical clearance. If the consultant doesn't agree with me, I get a phone call regarding that. And then final say is the anesthesiologist as to whether or not we're gonna be doing the patient in the outpatient setting again in some of the contracts and again this is something that your your uh, ASCs will will guide you on some of the contracts have these so-called groupers and they can be a real money loser for you and so you want to probably try to keep those away from your center um, and I will show you that the occupations do reduce uh, health care costs because you are now in control of the entire operation and you're going uh, if you are in control I believe you'll get better outcomes, happier patients. You'll be happier because every day you're working with the team that you want to work with and doing the procedures you want to do. So I say to you don't be afraid of doing the Medicare unis. Be diligent about that first uh, contact. Make sure it's a consistent message. Know the rules of your office and surgery center. Learn about your ASC payer contracts. And at the ASCs you do control the entire episode. The selection, the implants, the payer contracts are all control. So show me the data. So we to date have done almost 8,000, uh, hip and knee procedures in the outpatient setting. I'm going to show you the 6,000 that were done between June of 2013 and December 2017. You see these were divided between partial hip, total knee, and primary hip, as well as some revision hips and knees, and they were uh, 47% males and 53% females with a mean age of 58, a patient as old as 90, and a patient with a BMI of 60 was also done in that group. Uh, we had 19 patients that required transfer to an acute hospital, we had 5.8% that stayed overnight, 2.3% stayed for convenience, living greater than two hours away and done probably after four or five o'clock, and then 38 that stayed or, or transferred to a medical, uh, for a medical reason. The primary reason for staying overnight was respiratory uh, or OSA, some nausea, vomiting, not pain control. These are the major comorbidities we've looked at, from coronary artery disease to renal disease, and about 50% of the patients had at least one of these comorbidities. If you look at complications within 48 per, uh, hours, that occurred in 1 percent of the patient. If you look at unplanned care after 48 hours within 90 days, that occurred in 1.3 percent of the patients. If you look at surgical complications required treatment, 3 to 90 days, that occurred in 1.35 percent. And 90 day mortality was four patients, one of those of a PE who was on uh, appropriate care. Significant reduction in post-op uh, patient calls to the clinic. When we looked at the calls from our center versus our hospital, much lower calls from the center than from the hospital. Patient satisfaction rated at 98%. This is the experience of Mike Byrne in 1,230 outpatients uh, with outpatient uh, procedures in his practice representing 60% of his practice. Overall reemission rate you see of 2%. This is the data from uh, the... Uh, SCD in over 30,000 cases where you see 0.4% percent re rate and 0.25% infection rate. Is it safe? Yes. No difference in re rates complications. A couple of articles, no difference again in re rates at 30 days, outpatient comparable medical and surgical complications, a 50% redu- reduction in cost. And here's some cost data for you. To, uh, you see uh, HIPS versus the inpatient, 30,000 versus 22,000, knees, 30 versus 19, and you see the complication rate, 32% versus 36%, 29% versus 23%. Where'd I get this data from? I think that's the Blue Cross. All right, so I think everyone wins. Unfortunately, some more than others. Fortunately, we're in that group that wins more. Thank you so much for your attention.
2: Thanks, Adolph, some great uh, tips. And now I'd like to introduce one of my mentors and chairman at the Mayo Clinic, uh, Dr. Mark Pagnano, to talk about perioperative care and as it relates to pain control. Dr. Pagnano.
1: Thanks greatly, Michael. It's a pleasure to share some insights on how to get ahead with rapid recovery in 2019. The way that I've summarized it is that each and every one of us wants to get ahead and stay ahead uh, in taking care of these uh, patients. By way of disclosure, we get institutional research support at Mayo Clinic from multiple orthopedic companies, and I have individual product development agreements with DePue and with Stryker. I think all of us recognize today that contemporary hip and knee replacement is in fact dramatically different from that of a decade ago. A decade ago, all of us were still operating under the traditional sick patient model, where patients were expected to consume substantial hospital resources, and today, we've largely switched to the well-patient model, where we essentially make sure that patients are ready to go through the procedure, and then they're basically going through a process that gets them through safely. And Most of us recognize that it's really advanced pain management and blood management that are keys to making this happen. If you're going to do outpatient surgery or rapid uh, dismissal of any type, even with a one-night stay, you need a coordinated care plan that encompasses the preoperative, the intraoperative and the postoperative periods. If you only focus on one of these things, it's not really gonna work effectively. And I think the best way to group this is to think about three generic areas, get ahead and stay ahead in regard to fluid management, which includes your blood management, pain management, and nausea management. And if again, you only focus on one of these, if you only focus on pain or nausea or the fluids, you're not gonna make this work. So let's start with the fluid management. Strict NPO after midnight is something that's been around for decades, and that is, in fact, a bad idea still. Uh, We should really keep most of our patients drinking clear liquids up until two hours before surgery. Why is that? Well, if you let patients continue to drink that period of time, they'll stay well hydrated and they'll have more predictable responses to the anesthetic agents that we use for the surgery. It avoids major swings in hypotension, and the patients are also less nauseous and are much less likely to have pain. It's perfectly safe to do this. The American Society of Anesthesiologists outlined this over a decade ago. If you look here, I know it's small print, but uh, if you go down there, these are the recommendations for elective surgery in healthy patients. You can drink clear liquids up until two hours prior to an elective surgery. You do need to be pragmatic, however. Many of the patients that you and I are dealing with are elderly patients who may have some cognitive issues. So pragmatically for these elderly patients, you need very clear and very specific communication. So patients can have clear liquids. That means water, black coffee, plain tea. And the coffee and the tea are great if someone's a caffeine user. They won't come into the uh, surgery area with a headache and being dehydrated. But they can't have juice with pulp, and they can't have uh, coffee with, uh, with creamer. The second part of the fluid management is minimizing blood loss. There's no question that this is desirable. And we also want to el- eliminate transfusions. I think all of us recognize the major gains that have uh, occurred in this area over the last uh, seven or eight years. The biggest impact in my mind is not the cost, it's the fact that uh, blood transfusion markedly slows rehab and certainly is gonna prevent outpatient surgery. And as big as anything is the psychologic impact it has on patients. If you want to make a patient feel like they went through a big operation, subject them to getting two units of packed red blood cells. The most effective strategies to decrease transfusion is fundamentally to change your thought process, and most of us have already done this. The clinical symptoms that you and I traditionally attributed to anemia are most often a volume problem, not a red blood cell problem. And most patients can tolerate a hemoglobin of eight or even lower without running into any kind of difficulties. So the mantra today is think, give fluids first and red blood cells only later. And again, those traditional indicators of a so-called need for transfusion, orthostatic hypotension, an elevated heart rate, low urine output, those almost always respond to IV fluids and seldom need red blood cells. The other way to deal with blood loss effectively is utilizing an antifibrinolytic. Tranexamic acid is the most widely studied, and the IV formulation is the most well-established. Traditional doses of this in orthopedic patients are 10 to 20 milligrams per kilogram, but recognize in cardiac patients there are many dosing protocols that are four to five times higher than this. So tranexamic acid is a very safe medication, even at doses well above what you and I traditionally uh, will utilize. Topical and oral formulations are less studied but appear to be effective as well. At Mayo Clinic, I introduced a pragmatic dosing scheme back in the year 2000, and have used it in all of my patients since the year 2000. Uh, and since 2008, this has been the standard at Mayo, one gram IV pre-op with your prophylactic antibiotics and a gram at wound closure. You mix it with 50 cc's of saline and slowly infuse it so you don't get hypotension swings. I like IV formulations because I can verify that the patient got it. I can't do that if they got an oral formulation. In in tranexamic acid in 2019, it's very clear no matter which formulation, it will decrease blood loss, transfusion, and it's cost effective no matter which of these things you utilize. In regard to pain management, most of us recognize the components of a contemporary multimodal approach. The benefits of a multimodal approach will stay below the threshold for side effects, we want to also be preemptive to stay ahead of pain, and the focus today is really minimize the opioids. Preoperative strategies are well outlined, combination of acetaminophen and oral nonsteroidal, and doses typically of some type of opioid medication, and then a variety of other things can be added at your preference. The biggest thing that we've changed in the last couple years is the routine use of IV steroids. If you want steroids like dexamethasone to act as uh, analgesic, you have to use doses that are above eight milligrams. So four milligrams is okay as an antiemetic. If you wanna have a pain effect, you've gotta get to the eight, 10 or higher uh, milligram doses. For the anesthetic itself, spinal anesthesia in our practices become preferred. Less nausea, less pain in the PACU, less sedation, and none of the other side effects of being intubated. If you work with your anesthesia folks, they can tailor the dose of the spinal to your surgical predictability. If you're very predictable, you should think about utilizing a Mepivacaine-based spinal today. It's a shorter-acting spinal with a more predictable half-life. You're less likely to run into the complications, and when we've rolled this out into our practice, we've basically been able to decrease the uh, post-anesthesia stay by almost 40 minutes. If you're using general anesthesia, consider total intravenous anesthesia. This is a propofol-based general. Propofol has a short half-life, and it's much better tolerated than the traditional inhalation agents, but it does require more hands-on by your anesthesia providers. And then for the post-operative adjuncts for pain, really, I think in 2019, there are two big choices, a peripheral nerve block or a periarticular injection. The peripheral nerve blocks have the upside that they probably do provide the best pain relief, but in some circumstances they're cumbersome or time-consuming and they can cause motor block. If you're gonna use a peripheral nerve block in most circumstances in 2019, I think the evidence says use a single shot block, not a continuous or indwelling catheter. Periarticular injections, on the other hand, have benefits that they're simple, they're surgeon-directed, and they address pain directly at the source. Because of that, then, they do not interfere with muscle function at all. So uh, what really swayed me in this area was a randomized trial done by my colleagues at Mayo Clinic Arizona uh, several years ago that won a Knee Society Award. And we showed that uh, the periarticular injections were just as effective as uh, peripheral nerve blocks. Uh, which injection? Which uh, Expirel or liposomal bupivacaine had a run of enthusiasm for a while, but I think most of us have gravitated to mixing our own with ropivacaine, ketorolac, and some amount of epinephrine. We showed that there was no benefit of a liposomal injection both in hip replacement and knee replacement, and it's markedly less expensive to just mix your own. Postoperative medications, I think, need to be given in part on a schedule. And in addition, you need to keep the patients well hydrated post-operatively, so we'll often give patients a 500cc uh, IV uh, bolus once they get to the floor, and then we have Zofran uh, on Dancitron available for nausea management uh, immediately post-op as well. A big focus today in pain is the home-going medications. Typically you're going to use multimodal things and then a guideline approach to uh, opioid medications. We were able to markedly decrease our opioid prescriptions uh, with these guidelines. We'll give 400 oral equivalents, so that's basically 25 oxycodone and 40 tramadol as the take-home medication. With that, we saw no increase in the need for refills and a marked decrease in the number of opioids that we prescribed. The final area is to stay ahead of nausea. I think if you want to really ruin someone's day, it's to make them nauseous. So promote fluids pre-op promote them pro-stop, and then be proactive with your screening and treatment. If they're high risk or have symptoms, treating them with dexamethasone and ondansetron immediately is useful, and then again, the IV fluids. So I think overall, the contemporary way to deal with hip and knee replacement today is a deliberate, coordinated, perioperative plan that addresses all three phases for your patients. If you get ahead and stay ahead, you'll have grateful patients who progress faster through all phases of their recovery, whether you're doing that as an inpatient, an outpatient in the hospital, or an outpatient in an ambulatory surgery center. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks, Mark. Now, Greg Polkowski at a large institution is going to share with us his experience and probably some challenges that you can probably all identify with. Greg. Greg.
3: All right, thanks, Michael. I really appreciate the opportunity. This isn't a topic about which I'm usually asked to, uh, to opine. So um, by way of disclosures, I really don't have anything relevant to this talk other than the fact I have no financial conflict of interest or ownership in a surgery center, which is why, uh, not, not the only reason why, but uh, lack of access to is, is why I don't do them there. Um, We've already talked about patient selection. We've talked about the pain and anesthesia protocols. Everyone knows the reality of doing outpatient joint replacement surgery in the ambulatory setting. Uh, But I'm gonna talk about why you might consider doing it at a large hospital. A lot of the obstacles and some of the ways to try to overcome those and achieve success. Um, We know that immediate weight bearing, blood management, tranexamic acid, the multimodal phenomenon we've seen, and all the accelerated rehab protocols have gradually driven down the length of stay. We're delivering better care for our patients, and I think the field is better for it. Um, so why on earth, if you can do it in, a, in an ambulatory surgery setting, would you consider doing it at a large hospital? When I was going through the process of putting this talk together, I drove by this sign near a park in Nashville, and it and it made me think of this talk, and it made me think of my practice at a large bureaucratic uh, institution. And if, if you practice in one of those environments, you, you, you probably see the, uh, Uh, see the parallels, but the two big reasons for me to consider doing outpatient surgery in this large setting is number one to improve the patient experience and that's really the largest issue for me. The other is to leverage your value and recognize that we are all, you know, uh, the current uh, process is changing and we're all standing on shifting ground. So from a value leverage standpoint, there used to be inherent value in what we do and what we brought to the institution because of the DRG. And we've sort of become victims of our own success in spite of this um, organization's efforts to clarify some of the rules regarding Medicare patients and inpatient surgery, a lot of the hospitals, probably some of the ones that you're practicing at, are still coding a lot of primary knee replacements uh, as outpatient surgery. And I think shifting to doing those operations in the same day in the select subset of patients that are medically appropriate and socially appropriate to doing so does preserve your value and I think it's helpful to get ahead of the curve and be proactive with your hospital uh, in order to make that successful. The big issue I, I see for in my own, in my own uh, practice is patient satisfaction because time spent in the large hospital is not enjoyable. This is a big academic institution, there's a lot of buildings and there's a lot of people that work there bad things happen in the hospital. Adolf alluded to this. A lot of our patients, not all of them, but a lot of them recognize this. They see these reports and they know that being in the hospital isn't always the safest place uh, on the planet. Patient satisfaction. Our hospital is frequently full of sick patients. I get six emails a day with a capacity analysis, and we're frequently on orange or red, which means we have somewhere between 30 and 50 patients stuck in the emergency room waiting for beds. And that just slows down the process of getting my patients out of the recovery room to their hospital room. They frequently end up on an off-service floor. They may not get physical therapy the day that they uh, have their operation. How does that affect your uh hcaps your online ratings it's generally not good and i've had patients come back for their post operative visits frankly angry with Uh, their initial experience in the hospital and allowing them to leave those selective patients the day of surgery uh, can do a lot to improve their satisfaction. So how do you make that happen? Last weekend was NFL Draft in Nashville. It's also the country music marathon and just another analogy to kind of running uphill or or, or swimming upstream. You know, doing an outpatient joint replacement in an ambulatory surgery center is sorta like, you know, this world record uh, marathon runner. Uh, while doing it in the in the setting of uh, you know the large academic institution or large hospital system is like these guys running a marathon with you know forty or fifty pound rucksacks, so I kind of picture Adolf as uh, the gazelle running uh, swiftly and efficiently to the finish line, and, and here I am for some reason uh, the moron with uh, the fifty pound backpack uh, trying to plod my way through the process. So uh, it, can, it can my point is it can be done. But it's not easy. It's difficult. And by the end of this talk, you'll probably want to go invest in an ASC. <laughs> so, the obstacles are—I are, mean—are here. I mean, the process is the same in general, but it's—it's it's also different. Patient selection and patient education, hands down, are the same. The execution is really where things change. And these are the three issues that I've identified as the biggest barriers: the number of people involved. This is, you know, pretty obvious, the number of people involved is tremendously larger in the hospital setting. You have to deal with the shift worker mentality that isn't as much of an issue in the ambulatory surgery center. And the number of steps required to get that patient from the recovery room to their car is astronomically larger. And I'll go through some of those. So it's the same process in a different environment with different execution. To achieve success, you have to get each person moving in the same direction at the same time. If you're on your own ASC, you have so much control of what you're able to do. If you are practicing in a large hospital environment, you know this, it's impossible to get that many people moving uh, at the same time. There are missed line incentives everywhere. Um, the Ambulatory Surgery Center, if you can get 10 hours worth of work done in eight hours, everybody goes home. Five cases is five cases. You're gonna be there until the day is done. At my hospital, I can do two cases in the same amount of time as I can do five cases. It doesn't make a difference to the, to the staff, they're going to be there the whole day. So this is another barrier that has to be overcome. You have the same problem with the anesthesia staff. Uh, you know, at the larger institutions, you're more likely to be faced with uh, anesthesia residents, student uh, nurse assist, um, uh, anesthetists. Uh, and, and generally, slow people thrive in the, in the larger environment of the, of the main operating room and the, and the larger academic centers. So, uh, again, more barriers. Uh, failure to launch. And again, this gets to you know all the all the steps it takes to get out the door. This is kind of the congestion that seems to happen uh, on a daily basis at our place. Um, and I kind of you know outline some of the some of the you know issues you have. You know, they're in the recovery room. Their bed's ready. Maybe that process takes an hour. Maybe it takes four hours, depending how busy we are. Call for transport. Wait for transport. Actually have the transport. The nurse has to assess them. Call the physical therapist. It goes on and on and on and on. And when we first started making this transition. We we went through all these steps. Um, but we have changed. Uh, so the keys to success, as far as uh, trying to get the large group to move in the same direction, I think some helpful hints are you need to identify the silos and identify the key, the, the key players and get them moving in the right direction with you and then hopefully they can kind of get their team to move along, but it's not easy. I, I think emphasizing the team is a very, uh, a very helpful thing that's been very useful for us at Vanderbilt. From the misaligned incentive standpoint, this is always a battle you're always gonna fight. We don't have the ability to selectively incentivize our joint replacement nurses and um, uh, anesthesia teams uh, at our place. You may be in an institution where that's possible and I would jump on that if you can. We try to create a team environment. We try to do happy hours with some of the folks to help get them motivated on the days that they're working when we're doing a high volume and trying to get these patients churned through. I'll buy lunch on you know certain days in order to help uh, keep morale high. And for the outpatient cases, we try to do those as early in the day as possible to avoid the afternoon slump and the ex- extra congestion that usually happens with uh, patients being discharged and patients being transferred to the floor. So uh, it's never gonna be as perfect as, as the ASC. So how do we turn uh, our big hospital environment to the aircraft carrier that can launch uh, jets at a moment's notice? We have to slash as many steps out of the process as possible. So for us, we made a big process change. And instead of having them go to their hospital room, which is what you know, we initially uh, tried to do, we try to cut out as much of the transport especially as possible. They hit the recovery room, we try to keep them into a dedicated area. The therapists are notified ahead of time, usually the day before of the patients that we know are anticipating a same day discharge. And they you know, are, are notified immediately once they uh, their spinals wore off and they uh, come assess the patients, get them up and walk them. We reassess them to make sure that they are in fact ready for discharge, usually a few hours later, and then they're transported to the car for the family. No case managers no social workers, no additional patient transport, we get all the prescriptions taken care of beforehand, it's just doing a lot of the work, but doing it ahead of time. I think additionally it's helpful to really engage your hospital when you're trying to motivate this many people to move in the same direction at the same time, you gotta do something big to get their attention. Create a program, call it a trial, give it a special name. Uh, these people need a big push, and I, I think it's helpful to, uh, to do that in order to, to, to get some response and get some feedback in the right direction. So in summary, uh, I think there are some good reasons to consider doing outpatient joint replacement surgery in the select patient. Uh, even in a large hospital setting. I think it's helpful to leverage your value. And again, for us, improving our patient satisfaction because how congested our hospital is was a big thing for us. Uh, Selection and education, again, are of the utmost importance. Uh, The process is the same, but it's different. You have more people to deal with, far different incentives, and you really need to downsize the process in order to make it successful. It really does require more work, more coordination, and all the effort has to be done prior to surgery. In the end, after you know, going through this process and really thinking about it a little bit more to put this talk together, uh, as I am sort of feeling, you probably want to figure out a way to get it done at an ambulatory surgery center. But if you're landlocked, uh, there are some options for you and hopefully this is, uh, uh, provides useful information. Thanks for your attention. And Michael, thanks for the invitation.
2: So I'd love to have some questions, Uh, otherwise we'll go through some case examples. If you have questions for the panel, please ask. I want to apologize personally to Greg Polkowski, because when I asked him to give that talk, I had no idea it would be that painful for you, Greg. You looked a little bit more dejected today than when I asked you to give the talk, and I lived every slide with you. I'm sorry. So sorry. Yes.
1: Thank you. Uh, Quick question about TXA and uh, Decadron, do you uh, routinely uh, recommend routine use of those up to 24 hours after surgery or just uh, at the time of anesthesia and after the incision?
2: Yes. Turn the mics on please.
1: Testing. Working? Yep. Uh, So for tranexamic acid, uh, I think for hip and knee replacement, uh, it looks like uh, either just one or two doses of IV uh, seem to work very effectively. So there's no real need to do the extended uh, uh, use of it like they do in cardiac. Uh, so, don't torture yourself with that. And then with the, uh, with the steroids, uh, kind of depends on what your goal is with that. So I think if your goal is nausea management, then typically a single dose preoperatively is very effective. If you want to potentiate your uh, analgesic effect and maybe decrease opioids a little further, you could consider additional doses postoperatively, but I think all of us are trying to weigh risks in the the unknown risks associated with the steroids with the kind of known
2: benefits. Any other comments from Greg and Adolf?
3: Yeah, we uh, pretty I mean, pretty much use the same protocol as Mark does with the spectrotraenexamic acid. On the steroids, we, we'll give them a dose, usually 10 milligrams of Decadron, uh, you know, at the beginning of the operation, another 10 milligrams, provided they're not diabetic the following day, and we've actually done some work looking at the inflammatory response that the patients experience after their surgery, and giving them a preoperative dose of Decadron actually cuts their CRP in half during their hospital stay. So there's some physiologic effects uh, that happen on an inflammatory uh, level beyond what they get from their pain control and their, uh, and their, uh, and their nausea control, which are probably quite related. off any difference? Yeah, I want to
0: thank Mark because his data I use and at our specialty hospital and at the surgery center, we give the TXA to everybody. At the hospital I go to that resembles yours, I can't get it passed to the anesthesiologist, uh, so I have to do it topically, and I don't feel it's as effective. As far as the Decadron, we do one dose pre-op and one dose uh, post-op, and that was written up by Joel Pallidi, and I believe he won an award here at AUKUS for that. Yeah, great, next question.
3: Question about uh, Decadron. Any concerns about risk of osteonecrosis uh, in young patients?
0: No. I, I, my partner, Tom Maury was using Decadron when I started twenty-eight nine years ago. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of an unknown, right? I think all of us have anecdotal reports of somebody that got a brief exposure to, uh, to steroids in one form or another and did develop AVN, uh, but putting a number on it is low. Uh, good news at uh, Mayo, there's some individualized medicine work going on to identify the gene factors associated with that. So hopefully in the next several years, we'll actually have a <clears throat> Uh, a way to test patients to know if they are, in fact, uh, gonna be susceptible to steroid-induced AVN.
2: I think the only thing we've seen from a perioperative medical perspective with Decadron and steroid use, and we use it, is in pre-diabetics and diabetics, understanding their post-operative glucose can go out of whack. So if you have someone who's staying in the hospital for overnight stay and if you do monitor the glucose hospital metrics require that you do just be careful you will see rise and you just need to stay on top of that so we avoid it in, di- in diabetics but everyone else gets it for sure but some people even use it in, in diabetics so I think stay tuned we'll learn even more and more about decadron as we do this more next question I guess this
1: tails on what you just asked um, for diabetics that you're considering. controlled diabetics that you're considering an outpatient candidate do you give the full strength decadron do you weigh it differently do you If you pull your punches on the Decadron, if you think they're going to go home and they need that pain relief of eight.
3: Adolf,
0: we'll start with you. Well, I mean, nausea, vomiting is one of the reasons that people stay, so yes, we do the Decadron.
3: Greg? We do not use Decadron in diabetics uh, on purpose. Sometimes it happens uh, inadvertently, and I'm not uh, terribly enthusiastic about sending the diabetic patient home day of surgery. That's not something I'm quite as comfortable with because I want to keep a closer eye on their blood sugar personally. Thanks.
1: Yeah, I think the doses that we're talking about here, 8, eight milligrams or 10 milligrams of uh, dexamethasone, for instance, those are well within the range that the diabetes effect can be managed pretty effectively. I'd be concerned about sending them home with a week or two weeks of it, but
2: one or two doses is fine. Yeah. Stefano. Great, thanks,
1: Mike. Uh, Stefano Bini from UCSF. Uh, I may miss it, but I didn't see anybody discuss Foley catheters, particularly males, particularly spinals
2: yeah, Did so we, we, yeah, so this came up at the Ocus yeah. main meeting in November because we presented data on urinary retention, as well as one of the award papers was on um, trying to prevent um, urinary retention, which has probably now been identified as one of the single, if not the single biggest barrier to discharge, particularly in in male patients. And so, Um, I'll ask the panel to first give their talk on what they do, and then I'll comment on our data. So Adolf, I don't know if you want to talk about urinary tension and Foley catheters, what you all do at your institution. Uh, Whether they're done at the specialty hospital or or the surgery center, no Foley catheters unless
0: we're doing revision. Uh, and We know the revision is going to go more than an hour and a half to two hours. Uh, And we discharge the patients. Obviously, we wait for them to urinate from the surgery center. Uh, I can't recall the last time we had to Put a Foley in or keep somebody, but they will stay overnight if that's if that's an issue.
1: Yeah, and similar, we have not used Foley catheters routinely in primary hips or <clears throat> knees for almost I'm going to say 12, 12 years at uh, at Mayo, and uh, so we'll in and out cath people if they have urinary retention. Uh, it's rarely a factor in preventing a patient from going home.
2: Greg?
3: Yeah, we've actually made the switch from using bupivacaine routinely for all of our spinals because of urinary retention or what we, th- what we thought that was the cause of it. And, and as uh, um, uh, Mark suggested, using the mepivacaine uh, and have found less urinary retention in those cases. But nobody for a straightforward primary case or even some of the shorter revisions gets a foley. Uh, in our institution. I would also say keeping them hydrated, like Mark had mentioned, keeping their fluid status up before the surgery I think is, is helpful because you know their volume's better, which makes them feel better, but also it allows their bladder to fill sooner and kind of keep the process going to where they're not sitting around for two hours with a relatively empty bladder because they're somewhat dehydrated. I think that process is useful <clears throat> as well.
2: So this is a very complicated issue, and it's not as straightforward as you would think. So we have always hydrated people very well, and we still see it. We've also used Mepivacaine in our outpatients. We still see it. We're studying it to determine whether urinary retention as a single factor is affected by Mepivacaine versus Pupivacaine. And then finally, we've, as it is now out in Journal of Arthroplasty, it's in the ACUS Proceedings, but there's two anticholinergic agents used in anesthetics that you should avoid. You're able to do that and successfully do the anesthesia that in alone has helped us reduce the incidence of urinary retention and then finally good screening so you need to ask patients whether they've ever had a history of it particularly males and that's the other thing and to mark's point if we have it so there's one thing once prevention but it can still happen we do one of two things we will either place a foley and have them follow up with the urologist or teach them how to in and out cast and teach them and their family how to do that you can imagine that's less appealing but some will do it so that's just there's as we merge to outpatient we have to address these issues and for I don't want to sit up here and say it never happens because it does occasionally we're trying to prevent it but if it does you have to have a plan in place to get these people home especially if you're in an ASC. Stefano do you have a follow up?
1: Yeah, one of the things that we tend to forget is that there are downstream consequences to our actions, and one of the things we started doing that yeah. in our hospital, which sounds a little like Vanderbilt, is that the nurses complained that the amount of time required to check on patients constantly if they peed, took yeah. away from their ability to care other patients. Yeah. And so yeah. for us, putting a catheter in takes no time, you pull it, you're done. Yeah. But for them, it's there is a downstream effect. So I, I think we have to keep in time in in the context of big picture things, especially in large institutions like ours, that are not quite as nimble as ACs like Adolph's, that can be an issue.
2: Mark, did you want to comment? Yeah,
1: I mean, realistically, the prime driver, certainly certainly for us at Mayo and lots of places, right, needs to be the needs of the patient. And so to subject the vast majority of men or any patients to a Foley catheter, I think, in 2019, um, just because of a nursing issue. Seems like the priorities are flipped. I understand, yes, now the, maybe now because of the nursing, now the patient is better with a Foley, but that's still the tail wagging the dog.
2: Yeah. So, next question. Thank you for being patient.
1: Sure. Uh, so, two questions. Number one antibiotic prophylaxis post op. Um, What are you guys doing for that? Are they getting oral antibiotics to go home for a couple days uh, or whatnot? And then second question is, as a posterior approach surgeon, does approach factor into outpatient versus inpatient?
0: So Adolf will let you start, go down the line. So for antibiotics, uh, just because of the 24-hour thing, we (coughs) give them uh, three doses of Keflex to go home with. Uh, I'm not sure that we have to do that. There is some data that says one dose pre-op is enough. Uh, So I'm sure others will comment on that. And then uh, the other thing was, uh, what now? If you do a
2: Surgical, approach. Surgical approach. Posterior approach. I don't do
0: posterior approach. We do. I do. Fifty percent of mine are direct lateral. Fifty percent are direct anterior. Okay. Uh, but I know surgeons who do posterior approach uh, and do them as
1: outpatients. Okay. Yeah, and for us then, uh, they'll typically get uh, one additional dose of IV antibiotics postoperatively, but obviously they're not getting 24 hours. Uh, we don't give them any additional once they leave the hospital if they're a same day. And I do posterior approaches <clears throat> and I've done outpatient total hips for five years now. Uh, One of the first people actually to describe outpatient total hip was Kim Burton in Salt Lake City and he was doing a posterior approach 15 years ago. Uh, So it's all about uh, just what are your the operative discussions with the patients.
2: Yeah, true, Greg, any different?
3: Same as Mark in the interest of time.
2: Yep, same as us, okay, Uh, question.
3: Actually just a, a comment, I uh, don't mean to backtrack, but with the uh, urinary retention uh, discussion we had before, um, uh, we looked at our institution at the uh, the cost of a urinary catheter, which was $16, compared to what the hospital was uh, charging the patients for a bladder scan, which was $450. Um, and they would get several bladder scans. So. We actually, and also we have anesthesia that only took, uh, only gave bupivacaine, so um, we stuck with Foley catheters. We just pull them out in 24 hours.
2: Interesting perspective, Kevin.
3: Yeah, nice, uh, nice symposium for the folks that practice in the hospital setting. I'm wondering uh, how your administration has reacted to the impact on on margins from this transition to patient. I'm part of a big national health system, like 130 hospitals, and it's it's surprising to me how how far behind the the, the finance people have been in understanding the impact and really analyzing it because I think there's always a lag uh, in, in terms of their ability to analyze and I think they're just starting to wake up to it and see the impact, they haven't been very proactive about it. But I I think it's a big cliff coming in terms of uh, the impact on margins and therefore our influence within those institutions. So I'm wondering how your administration has responded to that.
2: So quick answer, Greg, and mark them because the time will stop that. It'll be a great segue for our health policy uh, symposium later. Greg.
3: Sure. Kevin, thanks for the question. So, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we would not uh, be considering this as as strongly as we are now had the... CMS not issued the ruling on, on uh, taking uh toll- off the inpatient only wrist. Um, our hospital took a very conservative interpretation of that and has been pretty much billing the majority of those cases as outpatient. And once that decision's made, in spite of the efforts to fight it, um, you know, the sooner they get out of the hospital, the better, obviously. So um, we were a little bit slow to, um, as you pointed out, to make those adjustments, but uh, that's part of the driving force behind what we're doing currently.
1: I think the biggest impact in the hospital setting is going to be on just what the leverage of orthopedic surgeons in the hospital setting ends up being, so NOI or some kind of measure of your net income is a prime driver of your power within a hospital system. Right now, you're exactly right. Most major academic centers uh, and even for-profit centers don't have a good handle on the impact yet, but they will in the next six months.
3: Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit
1: aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.